Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, John Wilkes Booth and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Now let's get started. April 14, 1865, began as one of the happier days of Abraham Lincoln's life. He had breakfast with his wife Mary and listened as his son Robert, present at the surrender of Robert E. Lee, described this momentous event. A mid-morning cabinet meeting, also attended by Ulysses S. Grant, was free of the usual crisis management and dire bulletins that frequently befell the government before and during the Civil War. Lincoln spent the afternoon looking forward to one of his favorite pastimes, taking in a play that night at Ford's Theater, and an opportunity to begin the process of improving his marriage, a union that had also suffered under the stressful demands of governance and sacrifice. At approximately 8 p.m. at the executive mansion, he entered the carriage that would take him and his wife to the evening's entertainment. Lincoln did not arrive until the play, Our American Cousin, had begun, but his sudden appearance in the presidential box to the right of the stage along the theater's second balcony caused an immediate reaction. The buzz prompted the actors to stop the performance, and the orchestra burst into Hail to the Chief, acknowledged by the president's modest bow and several curtsies from Mrs. Lincoln. Although newspapers and even the theater's proprietors believed that Lincoln would be joined by U.S. Grant, in fact, the general declined the invitation and left town that afternoon. Lincoln's wife and Julia Grant did not get along. Ultimately, Lincoln was joined in the box by family friends, Major Henry Rathbone, and his fiancée, Clara Harris. The president did not settle in until 8.30 p.m. At 9 p.m., acclaimed actor John Wilkes Booth entered the theater to listen to a few sentences of dialogue and gauge exactly how much time was left in the performance. He then left immediately, knowing he had at least an hour, before he attempted to implement his own plan for the evening. In April of 1865, Booth was an American celebrity, having earned as much as $20,000 a year, the equivalent of over $600,000 today. Booth was also described as the handsomest man in America and discreetly involved with Lucy Hale, the daughter of a U.S. senator. But Booth was also a Confederate sympathizer and a virulent racist who was enraged by Lee's surrender and negatively obsessed with Abraham Lincoln especially after the president stated that black Union soldiers should be granted the right to vote. With the Southern cause all but lost, Booth decided that he would intervene personally and launch a coordinated conspiracy to cripple the federal government and stop what he considered to be an unacceptable transformation of the conquered Confederacy. As the clock ticked and the play continued, Booth put the final touches on this intervention, confident that he and the other members of this effort would radically alter the trajectory of post-Civil War America. John Wilkes Booth was born in Bel Air, Maryland on May 10, 1838. 
while he was ostensibly the son and tenth of eleven children of Junius Booth and his wife Mary Ann, Junius hid a scandalous secret. When he emigrated from England with Mary Ann in 1821, he also deserted his first wife, Adelaide, and a son. Although Junius, already a successful actor, initially claimed to be touring the U.S. temporarily and promised to send financial support regularly, this arrangement would eventually break down after many years, prompting Adelaide to come to Maryland and confront her husband directly. It would be several years before Junius obtained a divorce and legally wed Booth's biological mother. This type of scandal was in line with the erratic behavior of Booth's father. Professionally, one of the leading Shakespearean actors of the 1820s and 30s, Junius Booth was also a volatile alcoholic who violently attacked his fellow thespians, attempted suicide several times, and even sent a threatening letter to Andrew Jackson that the actor subsequently maintained was a prank. Luckily, his prominence and friendship with the president helped him to avoid legal repercussions. Junius Booth provided his family a rural log cabin home near Bel Air, as well as a residence in central Baltimore. Eventually, he constructed a more ornate residence near the log cabin, which was called Tudor Hall. It was probably fortunate that John Wilkes was sent to a boarding school as a teenager, a development that afforded him distance from his father's glum and occasionally violent personality. Junius also supported the family by touring, absenting himself for long periods. When John Wilkes was 14, his father was persuaded by his oldest son, Junius Brutus Booth Jr., nicknamed June, to journey to California. June was a theater manager in San Francisco, and Junius Sr. heard his tales of potential prosperity in the region and resolved to go west, bringing another son, Edwin, with him. Edwin, five years older than John, was already performing with his father, and it was intended that both would find additional fame and fortune in Northern California. When this tour concluded, Junius Sr. began the long journey back to Maryland for the winter. While on a steamboat from New Orleans that was bound for Cincinnati, he contracted intestinal tuberculosis, possibly from contaminated drinking water, and died on November 30, 1852. His wife had to travel to Cincinnati to pick up the coffin containing his remains. In early December, he was eventually buried in the city of Baltimore. Junius Booth Sr.'s death greatly altered John Wilkes Booth's childhood. With his two older brothers already pursuing acting careers, he became the man of the house. The absence of his father's sizable income forced Booth's mother to rent out Tudor Hall and attempt to farm the surrounding acreage. This proved to be difficult and ultimately unsuccessful. Edwin Booth, eventually encouraging the family to sell off the family livestock, rent out the home, and return to the city of Baltimore. Edwin also encouraged his brother's acting aspiration, lining up a potential position with an associate in Philadelphia in the summer of 1857. From the outset of his career, John Wilkes Booth wanted to be perceived as an individual and not his father's son. And if he flopped, he also did not wish to bring disgrace to the family name. Hence, he was initially billed as John Wilkes. Although Booth's acting career got off to a shaky start in Philadelphia, he co-starred with his brother Edwin in Baltimore in a rendition of Richard III and spent two years as a regular actor at Richmond's Marshall Theater. During this time period, the volatile politics of the U.S. would literally penetrate Booth's world in the state of Virginia when, on October 16, 1859, John Brown and his tiny band of abolitionists attacked the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry. 
quickly tried and condemned to hang, Brown's fate stirred a national uproar, and threats to stop the hanging by force prompted local members of various militias to head to the area to maintain order and oppose any additional armed attacks. Booth, although not an official member, spontaneously joined some of his theatrical associates in this effort. Philosophically, a supporter of slavery and geographically a Southerner, Booth held strong views about the issue and was even eager to participate in a violent confrontation with abolitionists. Although such a confrontation never materialized, Booth, like most observers, was greatly affected by the experience of both witnessing Brown's calm and courageous demeanor, as well as pride in participating in what he believed to be a just and necessary national service. Although Booth was fired from his theater company upon his return to Richmond, the uproar created by some well-connected comrades got him quickly reinstated. Booth eventually grew restless in Richmond and joined a regional Southern theater circuit that provided him with regular appearances in starring roles. It was during this tour in 1860 that financial necessity, as well as a rising reputation, compelled the actor to allow a billing under his family name. The election of Abraham Lincoln in November of that year found Booth on hiatus in Montgomery, Alabama, amidst subsequent calls of succession, a perspective he did not share at the time. Like many Americans, he doubted that actual war would ever break out. As Montgomery was the headquarters of his acting company, Booth spent some time there, amusing himself with the company of an 18-year-old named Louise Worcester, a beautiful employee of a house of ill repute. But his openly outspoken criticism of secession, frequently while under the influence in upscale establishments throughout the city, forced him to ultimately leave, his safety no longer guaranteed. For Booth, his flight from the Deep South would begin a period of impermanence that would continue for the rest of his life. Frequently touring, he would live in hotels and during breaks and engagements would reside with friends or relatives, never with a home to call his own. A spendthrift who lived beyond his means, Booth was even known to stiff creditors despite working regularly throughout 1861. Also continuing his lecherous ways, he was stabbed in late April by a female co-star in Albany, New York, after she discovered that he had also seduced his other female co-star. The wound was across his forehead, but near the hairline, and not visible through a strategically placed forelock. Booth's personal distress was also compounded by the political crisis gripping the nation. Baltimore was involved in a riot of a mob intent on stopping troops from northern states from reinforcing Washington, D.C., the resulting violence would kill both soldiers and civilians, and the bitterness of secessionist Baltimore residents placed under martial law following this unrest propelled the country ever closer to an armed conflict. During this time period, John Wilkes Booth was quite outspoken in his hostility towards abolitionists, but this emotion never led to his enlistment in the Confederate Army when the Civil War finally broke out in April of 1861. Although several explanations have been offered for this omission, including an extreme fear of the sight of blood and a promise to his mother that he not get himself killed in the conflict, this lack of commitment remains unexplained. Instead, Booth continued his career as an actor, intent on appearing in New York or Boston. But based on his lack of professional stature, he had to settle initially on St. Louis and then Chicago where his depiction of Richard III earned him praise as a genius from the Chicago Tribune. From there, it was on to a triumphant return to Baltimore in a theater owned by John T. Ford, who also ran a similar establishment in Washington that would feature prominently in Booth's future. 
Next was New York, where Booth played to a packed and enthusiastic house for three weeks in April of 1862. Strangely, it was Booth's only long-term engagement in the city, probably because he did not wish to compete with his brother Edwin, who was intent on returning to Manhattan after a stint in Europe. Booth's performance was a smorgasbord of brief renditions of various roles from Shakespeare and other popular plays of the period. His New York performance was strong enough to earn him an appearance in Boston. Performing steadily until June of 1862, Booth decided to take a break and spent the rest of the summer at Tudor Hall, the home unrented, now in disrepair, and the fields overgrown. It was a bleak option for Booth, whose personality seemed to have undergone a drastic change, noticeable to his family. He was quick to anger, frequently drunk, casually brandished weapons, and talked at length with himself, a genetic inheritance perhaps exacerbated by the pressure of maintaining high performance standards at the age of 24. Additionally, a fall engagement in Philadelphia was unsuccessful, Booth's first failure after a succession of positive appearances. Booth rebounded in Washington, D.C. in the spring of 1863 and actually performed for Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater. The president was personally impressed by Booth's talent and told actor acquaintances that he would like to meet the emerging star. Several individuals approached Booth with this request, but he always remained unreceptive to the idea, and an introduction never occurred. Lincoln was not the only person fascinated with the young actor. Booth received numerous letters from women, smitten by his handsome features and charismatic stage persona. These he either tore into pieces or ignored entirely, already completely preoccupied with complicated relationships involving the various leading ladies and other remarkably attractive women who aggressively crossed his path. Although history has depicted Booth as a hardened villain, he was popular, convivial, and well-liked, especially by women and the lower-class people he encountered in his professional life. Booth was also wealthy. When working, he earned between $500 to $1,000 per week, once taking in an estimated $40,000 in a 15-month period. He suddenly became thrifty with his money, investing in government bonds, aiding his brother Edwin's purchase of a house in New York, and even investing in real estate on Boston's Commonwealth Avenue. Unfortunately, the terrible toll of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation only additionally embittered Booth. He spent much of 1864 performing in the Midwest and even in captured federal territory, including New Orleans, where he was demoralized by the sight of Union soldiers occupying the most prestigious city of the Deep South. This was followed by five weeks in Boston in a successful run, but behind the scenes, Booth was a physical wreck experiencing extreme weather in Missouri during the previous winter and a breakneck schedule of travel and performing, compounded by smoking and heavy drinking, left Booth with chronic bronchitis and possibly permanent damage to his voice. Following his Boston performances, Booth then refused any additional work, appearing on November 25, 1864 in New York with his two brothers in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Booth promised to participate in this benefit, celebrating 300 years of the author's birth, proceeds to be donated to construct a statue of the Bard in Central Park, which still stands. Simultaneously, perhaps prompted by a potential need to develop another source of income, Booth began investing in oil exploration in western Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, this ultimately failed venture drastically depleted Booth's assets and strapped the already overextended actor. 
The conclusion of 1864 also found Booth frustrated by his personal lack of participation in the doomed Confederate cause, a frustration that ultimately turned to obsession over the concept that he was a coward for avoiding the conflict. It was this obsession that would prompt Booth's fantastic scheme to radically alter the course of the Civil War by abducting Abraham Lincoln. With his acting career on hold or permanently abandoned, as early as August of 1864, Booth began discussing such a plan with Baltimore acquaintances Samuel Arnold and Michael O'Laughlin. This coincided with a savage argument that that Booth had with his brother Edwin, an abolitionist and Union sympathizer, which prompted John Wilkes to officially give away his oil properties by deed, underlining his desire to rid himself of all things Yankee. He also resolved to leave Northern Territory and made his way to Montreal, where he laid the groundwork for potential flight by opening a bank account and acquiring a bill of exchange, a traveler's check of the time period. Montreal was also a hotbed of expat Confederate agents, and one of these individuals provided Booth with letters of introduction to prominent rebel sympathizers in Maryland, including Dr. Samuel Mudd. In November of 1863, Booth would purchase weapons and horses and meet personally with Mudd in Bryantown, Maryland. What they discussed remains controversial, but Mudd subsequently introduced Booth to two other Confederate activists, Thomas Harbin and John Surratt, Jr., Harbin was a discreet but very capable Confederate spy in the region. Surratt was a youthful but zealous courier who frequently informed the Confederate military of Union troop movements in Maryland. Although Mudd, Surratt, and Harbin sympathetically listened to Booth's schemes to abduct Lincoln, they were personally alarmed by both Booth's unstable personality and excessive alcohol consumption. John Surratt Jr. would be further distracted by the death of John Surratt Sr., and hard times which prompted John Jr.'s mother, Mary, to lease out the family tavern on the D.C. Maryland line and relocate to another family property, a boarding house in metropolitan Washington. However, Booth would eventually frequent this boarding house and use it as a headquarters to further instigate the Lincoln kidnap conspiracy. Booth also reconnected with Arnold and O'Laughlin, getting the two men to transport a buggy and weapons into D.C. meant for use in the plot. Surratt also purchased a boat capable of transporting up to 15 people and left it in the care of another sympathetic recruit, George Adzerat, a German immigrant who made a living routinely circumventing the Potomac River Union blockade. John Wilkes Booth subsequently spent several months attempting to coordinate a feasible plan to abduct the president. He proposed kidnapping Lincoln during the president's frequent trips to visit wounded troops at the soldier's home on the outskirts of the capital, on the president's occasional impromptu carriage rides, which transpired with little security, and even at Ford's Theater itself, which Lincoln frequently attended, and Booth had both unlimited access to and specific knowledge of. But none of these proposals ever amounted to any substantive efforts. The most glaring failure, the absence of Booth to do anything at all, despite his and other conspirators' photographically documented presence only a few feet away from President Lincoln during the inauguration on March 10, 1865. Booth's access to the inauguration was the result of his ongoing and serious romance with Lucy Hale, the daughter of Senator John Hale of New Hampshire. Booth and the Hales lived in the same hotel in Washington, and the handsome actor and very attractive 24-year-old first met in 1863. Unlike some of Booth's other more sordid romantic entanglements, this relationship followed the traditional courtship mores of the period with attendance at formal dancing events and the exchange of flowery letters. 
but it was also complicated by the senator's appointment as minister to Spain, a posting that required the family's relocation to Europe. Lucy Hale would actually officially break up with Booth at least once, only to resume seeing him again. What Lucy's actual intention was in April of 1865 is still disputed, but it was clear that, despite its unpublicized nature, this was a serious relationship. John Wilkes Booth made his last stage appearance at Ford's Theater on March 18, 1865, as the nefarious Duke of Pescara and the drama The Apostate. A benefit for a fellow actor, Booth was by now in serious financial straits, having to borrow money from his circle of conspirators. Another inept attempt by this group to kidnap the president the day before only convinced all concerned that such an operation was impossible and that they might even be under official surveillance. For the time being, it was decided that it was wise for everybody to leave town. Booth went to New York, where he spent some time with Lucy Hale, his motives also unclear, as Lucy still fully intended to leave for Spain in a month. Booth eventually made his way back to Washington and made a half-hearted effort to organize his group of collaborators for an attempt at kidnapping Lincoln from an opera performance. But the president didn't even show up, and even the most ardent plotters either remained on the lam or gently told him to give up the idea. Finally, Booth reluctantly came to the same conclusion. In April of 1865, John Wilkes Booth was a very depressed 27-year-old. His career in shambles, his fortune gone, and involved in a volatile and passionate romantic relationship that was probably going nowhere, only added to his general agonizing over Confederate collapse. To former colleagues and associates, he seemed perpetually intoxicated, unstable, and possibly mentally unhinged. To one, he even publicly ranted that he had missed a golden opportunity to assassinate Lincoln at the inauguration, a comment that in the moment was ascribed to alcohol and bitterness, but still indicative of Booth's wayward state of mind. This mentality seemed to snap completely upon hearing Abraham Lincoln promise in an April 11th speech delivered from the White House itself that black soldiers who served in the Union Army should be granted the right to vote. Booth personally attended the speech with two other zealots formerly associated with his kidnapped conspiracy. Lewis Powell, a tall, physically formidable former Mosby's Ranger and POW fugitive, and David Herald, a 22-year-old unemployed pharmacist in the thrall of Booth's celebrity, introduced to the actor by John Surratt Jr. Both were in agreement with Booth's new scheme, assassination. They spent several ineffectual days trailing the president's movements, Booth becoming even more agitated by the ongoing celebration in the Capitol marking Lee's surrender. To all who would listen, Booth fanatically proclaimed that Lee's capitulation was the act of a coward, a remark that only drew laughter or derision. It was with this mindset that a hungover John Wilkes Booth made his way to Ford's Theater on the morning of April 14th. Begrudgingly, he had admitted to professional colleagues that economically he had no choice but to resurrect his career, and his appearance at the theater to pick up any fan mail and interact with theater management was probably an attempt to maintain ties with the theater's principles. There was, in fact, a letter, and while Booth sat on a step in front of Ford's, he heard stunning news. The president and his wife would attend the evening's performance of Our American Cousin, a play that Booth knew inside and out. Even more stunning, General Grant and his wife would also attend. Although Booth engaged in some brief repartee with owner Thomas Ford's brother Harry, he quickly left, eager to take advantage of this stunning opportunity. The exact sequence of the rest of Booth's activity on April 14th is not historically precise, but this much is clear. 
Booth retrieved a rented horse that he would use for transportation for the rest of the day. He dropped in at Mary Surratt's boarding house to request that she tell her tavern tenant to prepare weapons stored on the premises. Mary Surratt already intended to travel to her property in Maryland later that day. He also appeared in the lobby of the National Hotel, requested stationery, and composed a letter, a process witnessed by two clerks both familiar with him. Booth sealed the letter's envelope and left, ultimately handing it for safekeeping to an actor friend, John Matthews, he met on the street. Cryptically, he asked that Matthews get it published in the capital's most prominent newspaper, the National Intelligencer, if Booth did not retrieve it by 10 a.m. the next day. Matthews agreed, but he was also in a hurry. He would be appearing in Our American Cousin that evening. Next, Booth brazenly paid a visit to Kirkwood House, the temporary hotel residence of Vice President Andrew Johnson. Here he left a handwritten, personally signed note card inquiring if the vice president was in, most likely to determine if Johnson was actually still present at the hotel. A clerk placed it in a box with the rest of the VP's mail. Booth then returned to Ford's Theater at approximately 5 p.m., encountering a stagehand he knew named Edmund Ned Spangler. Spangler had previously helped Booth construct a private locked stable in a nearby alley behind the theater. The actor locked a smallish mare in the enclosure and told Spangler he was off to get a drink. Most likely, it was at this point that Booth slipped back inside of Ford's and made additional preparations for the task ahead. Then it was back to the National Hotel for what Booth sensed would be the last time. He must have been quite emotional as he assembled the essentials for his mission and prospective flight to safety in the Deep South. A hat, frock coat, dress black pants and shirt, and riding boots with spurs. Also, he took some personal items, including a compass, cash, his bill of exchange from Canada, a small date book, pencil, and five souvenir photographs of female acquaintances, including Lucy Hale. Most importantly, Booth then selected the weapon he intended to use to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. Although he had several revolvers at his disposal, Booth settled on a one-shot, 44 caliber Derringer, a small, easily concealed weapon. Stealth, as well as malevolence, probably dictated this choice. The tiny pistol, capable of firing a spherical lead ball that from close range would be lethal, and Booth fully intended to get as close as possible. Not wanting to be victimized by a misfire, Booth waited for this moment to hand load fresh gunpowder and a percussion cap. He also put a long, sharp, buoy style knife in his coat pocket presuming that he might encounter individuals intent on either preventing his attack or subsequently detaining him. At 7 p.m., Booth was observed leaving the hotel for the last time, his large steamer trunk and suitcase left behind. Booth then walked to Herndon House, the residence of Lewis Powell, most likely paid for by Booth. Here he met Adzerat, Powell, and Harold. In a tense meeting, Booth explained what he wanted from each man, Adzerat would stab and shoot Andrew Johnson. Powell was to make his way to the home of Secretary of State William Seward, a powerful member of the cabinet, and kill the outspoken abolitionist. Harold, more familiar with the Capitol streets, would guide Powell along the way. Booth vowed to go to Ford's theater and shoot Abraham Lincoln. Booth explained that kidnapping the president and even other members of the government would have little impact on the current political situation. Only a triple assassination of the heads of state would provide the shock necessary to derail the current course of events. While Powell, even more fanatical than Booth, was eager to participate, Adzerat attempted to bring the group down to earth. Kidnapping was one thing, 
but murder he refused outright. Initially, Booth explained that Adzerod had no choice. He would be implicated regardless, and when the apprehensive immigrant still resisted, Booth became physical and threatened to, quote, blow his brains out, unquote. Whether it was to appease Booth or to actually carry out the plan, Adzerat reluctantly agreed to participate. The men would all stage their attacks between 10 and 10.15 p.m. Afterwards, they would meet at a specific spot in Maryland, just beyond the Navy Yard Bridge. The conspirators scattered into the city, Booth walking back to Ford's Theater. Ducking into the lobby, he needed to hear only a few lines to know exactly how much time he had. He left and walked down a side alley to retrieve his horse and then initially attempted to get Ned Spangler to hold it behind the stage door at the rear of the theater. But Spangler refused, busy with scenery backstage. John Burroughs, nicknamed Peanut, was summoned and Booth consigned his horse to Spangler, obliging him to find someone to take care of it. Burroughs, a lowly vendor, begged off, but Spangler insisted. So familiar was Booth with the theater that he crossed under the stage during the performance via a trap door and subterranean passage. He emerged on 10th Street at the front of the building and headed to a saloon next door. Casual observers would assume that Booth had come to the play as a pedestrian. Only a few backstage employees knew he had a horse. Booth entered the Star Saloon at approximately 10 p.m. He ordered whiskey and a bottle was placed in front of him and eventually water. Quickly downing a shot, he remained alone and was not bothered by other patrons as he reflected on the task ahead. Eventually, he paid for the drink and walked out of the bar and down the street to the theater. He heard the dialogue as he entered, reassured that he still had plenty of time. Booth walked up the circular stairwell to the left of the lobby and made his way along the rear aisle of the second tier of the theater. He paused briefly and leaned against the back wall, observing the area around the entrance to the presidential box and the box itself. He must have immediately noticed that the door leading to the area was virtually unguarded. Only Charles Forbes, a presidential valet and messenger, was seated by the entrance. John Parker, a policeman and part of the rotating permanent detail assigned to guard Lincoln while the president was in public, was not in the vicinity. Parker, Forbes, and the presidential carriage driver, Francis Burke, had already spent intermission at the Star Tavern. Parker was either still drinking there or somewhere else in the theater, seeking a better vantage point to observe the play. Booth approached Forbes, produced a calling card, and had a brief conversation. The valet let him pass without hesitation. What Booth said to Forbes and what was printed on the card has never been documented. Nevertheless, once Booth opened the door leading to the presidential box and very quietly closed it behind him, there was nothing between him and Abraham Lincoln. To further insulate himself in the box's interior, Booth leaned down and retrieved a piece of lumber from underneath the edge of the entranceway rug. At some time in the afternoon, on one of his trips to the theater, Booth surreptitiously placed this wooden stud from a music stand under the carpet. He also had carved a notch in the wall opposite to this door so that he could wedge an impediment to anyone trying to follow him once he was inside. Without a sound, he snugly fit the beam in place so that the door would have to be broken down to gain entrance to the box. Once this task was completed, Booth looked through the closest of two doors that led to the box seating area itself. A small peephole, perhaps also installed that afternoon by Booth, allowed him to see the rocking chair directly in front of this door, a seat occupied by President Lincoln. Gripping and turning the doorknob, Booth timed his entrance perfectly, the entire audience focused on a high point of the play. Following this access, 
Booth reached into the deep right pocket of his jacket, retrieved his derringer, and cocked the hammer. With his left hand, he gripped his knife. Booth also timed his actions so that only one actor, Harry Hawk, was on stage. Hawk focused on delivering a line that would convulse the entire theater in prolonged laughter. The assassin was so close that he could have reached out and touched the president on the shoulder. Instead, as the audience exploded with a predictable reaction, John Wilkes Booth pulled the trigger of the Derringer, positioned only inches behind Abraham Lincoln's upper body. The box was briefly illuminated by the flash of the gun's muzzle, the 44 caliber round entering the president's skull at a diagonal, which began at the lower left of the head, below the ear, and traveling upward, lodging behind the right eye. Abraham Lincoln slumped forward, his chin resting on his chest as if he had fallen asleep. For a split second, the entire theater sat silently motionless and confused. Only Major Henry Rathbone moved towards the wild-eyed intruder who had invaded the box. Booth raised his knife, fully intent on stabbing Rathbone to death, but the Major was able to parry the assassin's downward thrust with his arm, incurring a deep wound near the elbow. This attack bought Booth enough time to swing a leg over the railing, intent on flight out of the theater before the crowd could react. He did not hesitate to make the 11-and-a-half-foot drop from the box to the stage below. But in the frantic seconds before Booth could vault to safety, his spur caught up in the box bunting and the large portrait of George Washington adorning the area as Major Rathbone grabbed at his coat, forcing the assassin to land awkwardly below. A bone was broken in Booth's leg, but not seriously enough to immobilize him. He moved quickly to the center of the stage, his arm raised triumphantly, stage lighting illuminating the blood-spattered knife. Harry Hawk fled in terror. The rest of the audience remained paralyzed, either too stunned or too bewildered to make a move. Booth stopped suddenly and thundered, Six Semper Tyrannis, Latin for thus always to tyrants, but probably more relevant in this moment as the state motto of Virginia. He added, the South is avenged, before storming towards the rear exit of the theater, slashing wildly at the one individual who inadvertently got in his way. Booth had no additional time to exult over what had already transpired. He was intent on getting to the alley as quickly as possible. If Spangler or Peanut had irresponsibly returned the assassin's horse to its stall, or even worse, tied it up, walked away, and allowed it to be stolen, Booth was as good as a dead man. But if his horse was ready to go, it was off to Maryland and freedom. He emerged through the door and saw Peanut, attracted by the noise of the pistol shot, walking towards the exit. His hand gripping Booth's horse, Booth took the reins and pushed the younger man away with the butt of his knife, but had difficulty mounting the mare, the young animal skittish from the commotion, and Booth's desperation. One audience member, Major Joseph B. Stewart, did have the presence of mind to vault through the empty orchestra pit and chase after Booth, but as he emerged from the back of the theater, the assassin was able to right himself in the saddle. Although some accounts later claim that Stewart got close enough to grab at the mayor's bridle, only to have Booth evade him in the nick of time, most likely the major probably actually only saw Booth steady the animal, spur it towards the alley, and quickly gallop away the sound of the horse's hooves striking the paving stones, the last trace of the assassin before he successfully disappeared. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about John Wilkes Booth. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books 
Manhunt by James L. Swanson, and Fortune's Fool, The Life of John Wilkes Booth by Terry Alford. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.